thank you everybody for, for coming along to listen to me tonight. I hope you'll forgive me if I actually present sitting down for two reasons. Firstly, that I'm quite tall and probably will block out the screen if I start moving around. But secondly, I'm also suffering, as you can probably tell, with a bit of a cold at the moment, a nasty um, virus. So forgive me if I do sound a bit throaty and nasally, but it's the nature of... Um, the uh, fact that we've got a five-year-old son at primary school and he tends to pass germs around. I'm sure all of us who have families will recognise that fact. Anyway, delighted to be here today. And um, I have five main dimensions that I would like to cover over the next 30, 35 minutes or so. Firstly, I'd like to examine in general how cities can develop pathways to a more sustainable future by 2050. And to do this, I've divided the talk basically into five main elements, if you like. Firstly, to give an overview of cities and their impact on carbon emissions, but also on resource depletion and environmental degradation. Secondly, to look at scale and complexity at the city <coughs> level. And by complexity, I'm talking about that in relation to urban transitions. Thirdly, to look a little bit at the theoretical conceptualization of urban transition and how those kinds of framework can help our understanding to um, project pathways to a more sustainable future. Fourthly, to look at some examples of sustainable urban development from around the world, both planned and unplanned. And then finally, to look at some of the critical success factors that I think need to be in place for us to move to a more sustainable future. Primarily, the focus that I want to take this evening will be on the built environment and cities. And I'd also like to set that in the context of um, research that I'm personally involved in and will be for the next three and a half years, which is the EPSRC retrofit program. So I'd like to contextualise some of the things that I'm talking about in that light. So, um, as we all know, um, the majority or a majority of the world's population currently lives in cities. And this presents us with great challenges, obviously, but also great opportunities. On the one hand, we face pollution, excessive water consumption and water quality issues as well as increasing car usage, all of which add up to a cocktail of environmental impact compounded by poverty and inequalities. But alongside that, I think cities also offer us great potential for solving many of today's problems. Not only is there a concentration of people in cities, but we also have access to technology within those same cities and access to finance and capital markets. So we have the potential ingredients to focus on technology deployment and also to create economies of scale for solving environmental problems. So in a very strong sense, I think one of the messages I wanted to convey this evening was that cities are a large part of the problems that we face, but they also are a large part of the solutions. And that applies not only to environmental issues, which are mounting on an increasing basis, but also to the socio-economic pressures that we all face on the planet. Putting this into some context, um, today about 50% of the world's population, or some 3.5 billion people, live in cities. 
So between now and 2050, the world's urban population is expected to grow by something like 84% or 6.3 billion people. Now that growth, as you can see from this graph, is concentrated primarily in the urban areas of the less developed regions where we're going to see something like an increase from 2.5 billion today as represented by the, the vertical line, the dotted line there on the graph, to something like 5.2 billion in 2050. So there's a substantial growth of, of population and this probably doesn't come uh, as any surprise to, to people in the room. But the developed um, regions will grow less slowly in the world. The population there in 2050 in those regions is likely to be something like 1.2 billion compared with under um, a billion today. So a much slower growth trajectory as represented by the orange line on the graph. And in comparison, as you can see, rural populations in the world are going to be um, at first increasing in the less developed regions, but then tailing off. And primarily in the more developed regions of the world, rural populations, as we know, are in decline. And of course, population and demographic change is not the only thing we need to be aware of when we're considering cities. If we look primarily at the impact of buildings, then with the growth of urban populations come particular threats to our environment in terms of pollution and resource use. We know that buildings globally, for example, contribute 20% of water effluents, something like 30% of solid waste, and also 40% of carbon emissions. And in terms of resource use, buildings also use up land, something like 10% of our land globally, 20% of our water, 30% of our raw materials, and some 40% of our energy. So these are some really big figures that we need to um, be aware of. Now when we start to drill down into city level, we can see that cities themselves also play a major role in contributing to carbon emissions. As this slide shows, you can see that city level emissions, and by that I mean buildings as well as all the associated infrastructure, so this is a different perspective from the previous slide, are expected to grow substantially over the next 20 years to 2030. Now there's some controversy over the measurement of um, carbon emissions, but I think that most experts probably agree that something like 75% of global energy consumption and around about 80% of carbon emissions are primarily caused by cities themselves. Interestingly though, if you, if you start to look at the cities themselves in comparison with the nations in which they're based, there are some quite interesting patterns that emerge. And you can see on the right-hand side of this graph that actually as, as far as all these cities are concerned, with the exception of Beijing, that um, the carbon emissions per capita are lower than the countries in which they're based. Beijing is a bit of an outlier in many respects because it's based on 1994-98 data and so is not really very much up to date. But I think what this tells us is that the real emissions are coming through high consumption lifestyles within countries as a whole. So we can't pin the total blame on cities, but by the same token, they are a very important focus for the way in which we want to deploy technology and other um, strategies to try and move towards a more sustainable future. And of course, <coughs> developing nations themselves are set 
to increase in terms of their population as well as the emissions and consumption that they produce as urban populations grow in size. So <clears throat> in terms of looking at the city, I guess we can take a number of perspectives in terms of how we approach the built environment primarily. And by built environment, I mean the human-made surroundings effectively that pro provide the context for the range of human activities within cities from large-scale civic surroundings to personal places. We might be interested in studying cities, for example, in terms of new or existing buildings as well as their shape and form. So that might be one dimension in which we're interested. We might also be interested in looking at physical structures in cities all the way through to their social and economic uses as well as the users within that perspective. Alternatively, we might be interested in looking at individual buildings as researchers through to settlement forms at city or regional scales. And this idea of scale, I think, is really important because it affects the way in which we analyse and research cities um, to a very large extent. Frequently, I think, our thinking has failed to treat the built environment as spatially connected and complex. This spatial connectivity relates to the complexity of the infrastructure systems within cities, as well as the spaces, places and communities that we have, but also how human form and function um, relate together. So I guess if we were thinking of a categorization of urban environmental issues, we could think that they might, at a local scale at least, be poverty related and have local impacts. We might also consider that production related issues would range across a local to a regional scale, whereas um, consumption related issues are probably best thought of as being global in scale. So, Complexity operates across a range of urban issues and relates not only to the scale of governance to tackle these issues at a city level, but also to the institutional systems that we need to have in place and will operate over time. And this idea of temporal scale is something that I think is really important because there are some big questions that surround scale disconnections and the way in which we've almost fragmented decision-making vis-a-vis planning and the environment. There's been some really good work by um, Bai and her colleagues um, who've worked um, in Southeast Asia and Australasia, and they've suggested frequently that there are scale mismatches actually operating here. So there's a temporal mismatch in terms of decision-makers saying, it's not in my term, in other words, it's not in my term of office. There are spatial um, mismatches in terms of it's not in my patch. And there are institutional mismatches in terms of it's not my business. So all of this leads to a kind of disconnection between the way in which urban decision making happens and the way in which um, decision makers would like to focus on global environmental concerns but feel these constraints coming through. So I think decision makers are mainly constrained by short timescales, the short timescales within which they operate, uh, 
the immediate spatial scale of their jurisdiction and then the fact that they have to operate within nested hierarchies of governance structures. So what could be a 10-year time frame in planning terms becomes a much longer time frame in environmental terms. So that, I think, is a really important point and something that really needs examining in more detail through further research. But the size of the challenge is also huge that we face. I mean, just looking at some of the figures recently in um, a report from Booz and Company for the World Wildlife Fund, which was called Reinventing the City. Over the next 30 years, there will be a phenomenal amount of investment, something like $350 trillion worth of investment that's needed globally if we are to tackle the issue of climate change and resource depletion within cities. In other words, we need to look at, for want of a better expression, the hardwiring in our cities, the way in which people move, the way in which technology is deployed, the way in which power systems in relation to energy are deployed, and of course the way in which our buildings are managed and retrofitted to fit future uses. So there's a very clear emphasis, I think, in all this on retrofitting cities or re-engineering um, the buildings and infrastructure within cities for a more sustainable future. And when you think about it, it's not, not surprising, given that 80% of our city's buildings will be present in 2050. So at any one time, what we, what we can say about cities is that only 1% to 2% of the buildings in a city are new build. So the legacy stock that we have um, of 98% is the, the stuff that we have to tackle if we want to make sure that we have a sustainable future. And a key problem, of course, is that scaling up, actually tackling a retrofit of a building, never mind a city level, is extremely complex. And I thought a good example just, just to cover in the talk this evening would be the Empire State Building in New York, which um, many of you would have read about in the press. But probably this is one of the most challenging multi-tenanted retrofit programs that, that's um, currently on, happening at the moment. And in, in New York, something like 43% of the space is pre 1945 space, so there's an awful lot of legacy stock there, and the Empire State Building is one of those. It's something um, like 102 storeys high, and actually New York City has um, a fairly low per capita emission, in much the same way that I was talking about earlier. It is one-third of the national average in the States, so it's um, really due to the fact that it has a, a, an excellent public transport. Uh, port system, uh, pretty, pretty high density there as well as smaller dwellings. But the project itself um, within the context of, of New York has set very ambitious targets and one of the keys has been getting tenants on board and changing their behaviour through energy manage management plans. So started uh, in 2008, the idea is to reduce energy um, consumption in the building by something like 38% and along the way something like half a billion worth of capital improvements will be carried out on the windows and the building envelope. So it's a big project 
Um, but a lot of complexity in there and a lot of thinking that's gone into the project which will be happening over the next couple of years. Primarily the technology is focused on the windows and the building envelope as I say as well as developing energy management systems that brings the landlord and the tenant closer together to enable the um, energy consumption to fall in that building. But despite iconic buildings of this nature we really need to look belong beyond retrofitting I think. Um, yes retrofitting is important but we also need to consider the um, efficiency of appliances. We also need to think about decarbonizing the grid and we also need to think about changing people's behavior. But um, we face big problems because we have a fragmented built environment. We have, um, and I have to be honest about this because I'm, I'm from one of the disciplines in the built environment, a kind of silo mentality almost between the way in which professionals approach projects like the Empire State <coughs> Building and like other projects um, in, in the world of real, real estate. We often suffer from disconnections in the design process and there are functional gaps in, in the way in which we approach not only the architecture of a building but also the way in which we approach the mechanical and structural issues of a building. And then again there are gaps between the design process, the tendering process and the planning process and what you end up with is vertical and horizontal discontinuity, in effect operational islands where there's very little joined up thinking. I'm being quite critical here because I think it's important to, to be critical and to try and um, think of ways in which this might be resolved. But there's also a tendency I think in the world of, of property and construction to fast track projects and lose the true virtues of sustainability. We also tend to lose the detail of sustainability when we explain that to senior decision makers and that's because we're not clear enough about sustainability in the design process. And very often we focus just on capital costs rather than looking at the whole life cycle of the project from birth all the way through to construction and then occupation after that. Very often it's a case of cutting off after the building is complete without monitoring how the energy efficiency of the building is working and looking at um, how the people are behaving in that building, which is why post-occupancy evaluation is so important at a, a building level, I think. So because of this, moving towards a planned or managed urban transition is very difficult and often fragmented and piecemeal. So understanding how successful changes can be brought about and where we are in the overall evolutionary cycle is going to be really important for planning <coughs> and managing change within um, our urban areas. And if you look at the conceptualizations of the way in which transitions could work, we've seen um, some examples, some good examples from, from um, previous research and I think one of the models that interests me is the transition model, the urban environment transition model of Bai and Imura, which is basically saying that cities kind of evolve through a process of uh, poverty, production, consumption and eco-city uh, phases. 
This is not a seamless transition, clearly, and um, it's a normative model, but it does, for me, help in thinking about the kind of sustainable development goals that we might be aiming towards in the eco-city phase, which is basically now and moving into the future. In other words, we want to use resources more efficiently within cities. We want to use waste as a resource. We want to recycle waste. We want to restore and maintain urban environmental quality. And let's not forget as well that the social dimension, dimension to sustainability is also really important. We need to consider people's well-being as well as kind of integrating the systems that we have to produce um, effective and robust planning for the future. So I think there are some really important questions that we need to address and that model helps us in, some, in shaping some of our thinking. This, is, this, this kind of thinking has also influenced the development of what's become known, known as the urban meta metabolism model where cities have become self-reliant and have created a kind of circular metabolism which pr promotes and projects resource efficiency. Now clearly this again is a normative model and it's a cross-sectional rather than a longitudinal model and again we have to apply the caveats of not every city following a smooth transition and perhaps the same pattern isn't always applicable to each city because one size didn't, doesn't fit all in this respect. But I think um, that what we can say is that there's a kind of um, element that's really overlooked here and that is the kind of social technical interface. In other words, the way in which governance structures have to underpin our transitions. So that is, it's quite a helpful model in one respect but in many other respects, it um, fails to recognise the importance of governance systems. And an area that we're quite interested in, in Retrofit 2050, which is the project that I'm involved in, is this idea of transition management, which um, some of you may well be aware of. And I'm sure S Steve um, is aware of this theoretical construct um, and the work of Frank at um, Sussex University who's done some quite interesting work in terms of trying to understand how energy um, systems can be transitioned um, within the context of the Netherlands for example and there's been a lot of thinking that's that's gone into how we can build on the the s-curve the traditional s-curve of diffusion where um, technology follows this trajectory as, as represented by the, the red line over time. Um, but we need to understand that technological niches can develop and can break through. But in order to do that, there has to be an understanding of the way in which socio-technical regimes operate. In other words, the policies, the technologies, the institutions, the practices and the behaviours of people how those influence and create additional niches and the opportunities for breakthrough at a higher level further down the road. And not only that, we have to understand the way in which the political landscape and the wider landscape works in terms of deeply embedded socio-economic trends. 
So this is a very um, simplified version of, of Giels's model, but it's something that we would like to build on in the work that we're doing for Retrofit 2050. The problem, as we see it, is that so far this theoretical construct hasn't been applied at a city level, at a spatial level. So part of what we want to do is to enable that to happen so we can build on this kind of theory and make much more of the connections between what is to be done to the city in terms of technology deployment, the targets and the options and the costs of re-engineering, and then looking at that in conjunction with how it will be implemented through institutions and governance uh, structures. And in parallel with, with that thinking, I just wanted to touch on a kind of policy objective that's, that's become very important at um, a European level um, and also in, in the UK and, and the wider world as well, which is the idea of sustainable urban development. Now, um, this has been defined, as, as you can see on the slide, as development that improves the long-term social and ecological health of cities and towns. And at an EU level, we've started to think about this idea of integration, how we integrate uh, planning systems across local and regional economies. And that's become deeply embedded now in EU policy through things like the um, Bristol Accord and the um, recent uh, Toledo Declaration. We've also seen a move to local empowerment and a move to area-based um, re regeneration and development policies within the e EU. And this is kind of being played out against the backdrop of what we've all come to know and recognise as, sus as sustainable communities. In other words, communities that are well-run, well-connected um, and well-served, but that are fair in terms of equity and provide and promote social justice and build social capital. So this policy dimension is important, I think, because it helps us to understand some of the examples which I think exemplify um, good transition management and good and best practice sustainable urban development. And one of the best examples of this, I think, in Europe is Hammerby, which is on the outskirts of, of Stockholm. Now this is a brownfield site which was a former industrial and harbour area and it's one of the biggest urban development ventures in Europe, bigger even than the um, now defunct Thames Gateway project with its, with its pockets of um, redevelopment but now unfortunately sadly uh, in demise because of the coalition cutbacks. But um, the Hammerby project in Sweden is still going ahead and it's often cited as an exemplar of integrated environmental urban design. There's something like 11,000 homes there which include a large proportion of affordable housing and something like a quarter of a million square feet of commercial space. So it's a big scheme which is going to be completed by 2018 and ultimately it will have a population of something like 30,000 people there. The model, the Hammerby model, has been much written about in the academic press as really a prime example of how urban metabolism actually works in practice, but how 
the joining up between energy, water and waste systems has been underpinned by a strong governance system. So I think that's, that's a really good example of how we can get sustainable urban development right. And another good example, although it's faced some criticism, is the Dockside Green scheme at Vancouver. Again, it's a mixed community scheme um, which has been designed according to new urbanism principles. In, in other words, we have medium to high densities there, but with a strong community focus and the ability to walk to local services and shops. It's a sort of pint of milk test. How long does it take you to walk to get a newspaper or um, pick up some goods early in the morning? And a key aspect of the regeneration or the redevelopment here has been the building of a biomass gasification plant that converts waste wood into gas that's burnt to provide hot water and heat. And that provides energy not only for the residents, but is also sold on to other neighbouring communities. But I think a key criticism here has been, in many respects, that there hasn't been enough affordable housing in that scheme. So we're perhaps in danger of creating an eco-enclave, a bit like the gated communities that have been criticised by writers such as um, Anna Minton in the past. Are we, in providing schemes like this, creating perhaps um, a fragmentation between the people who can afford an eco-house and the people who can't afford an eco-house. If we don't provide enough affordable housing, then we don't promote social sustainability and therefore it's not, even though it might be environmentally sustainable, it's not socially sustainable. Curitiba is um, also another um, good example, actually, of how to re-engineer a city over really a 40-year period. Um, you know, it's Brazil's fourth richest uh, city and um, Jamie Lerner, or Jaime Lerner, depending on, on how you pronounce it, is um, the former mayor of the city and was really at the heart and the root of coming up with a master plan in 1968 which set out the ground rules for redesigning, re-engineering the city really and creating a really effective public transport system, because we have to remember there that 75% of the commuters take the bus. So in other words, there's 25% less congestion in this city and 30% lower fuel consumption than in other similar sized Brazilian cities. It's got excellent recycling facilities and a green and livable environment. And everyone has access to um, public transport. So what we have, and you can probably see from the plan, is the suggestion at least of arterial roads along which the development has happened over the last 40 years. So we have growth corridors within that city with density decreasing away from those growth corridors as you move outwards. So there are three good examples, I think, of how sustainable development can work in a planned and integrated way. But I'd like to touch on how unplanned transitions can kind of come about. And many of you that saw the, the, the Julian Temple uh, film, I don't, I don't know whether you saw it, Requiem for Detroit, um, which was um, last year, I think. But a fantastic um, cutting-edge film which focused on the decline of Detroit um, after it, its history was built on 
uh, Tamla Motown, of course, and uh, Henry T. Ford's car industry, the city has shrunk dramatically over the last um, 50 years as a result of out-migration and economic decline. And this was started in the 1950s when there was a, a white flight to the suburbs, uh, sparked um, an increasing uh, trend in 1967 with the race riots there. And what we have today is a situation where Detroit's population is now less than half of what it was in 1950. So over 40 square miles in the city is vacant land and something like 30,000 to 50,000 buildings are now empty. And I quite like this, this quote here which is from um, Harper's Magazine, where it says that this continent has not seen a transformation like Detroit's since the last days of the mayor. The city, once the fourth largest in the country, is now so depopulated that some stretches resemble the outlying farmland and others are altogether wild. So um, this is a kind of unplanned, um, really serious um, economic decline, but um, it's a shrinking city with a huge jobs gap and also a shrinking tax base. As the people have moved out, so um, it's been impossible to uh, take taxes anymore. And so there's a $300 million budget deficit and house prices have fallen to something like $15,000. But let's not forget that the city has some key assets. Um, it has, still has its universities. It still has its medical centers and arts and cultural facilities, it string, still has a really strong neighbourhood and a rich and diverse architecture as well as strong innovation and creativity. And it's actually quite ironic that from all of this splendid dereliction, and you can see from some of the buildings here that they are very grand buildings which include hotels and, and schools and all the rest of it, that we've actually had a resurgence in the way in which land is used in a very different way. So the urban farming movement now in Detroit has really taken off and there are plans in place to develop a 50-acre commercial farm on Detroit's east side which will be the largest urban farm in the world. So out of all this um, catastrophe of economic decline we're actually seeing the bright green roots of an unplanned and community-led, actually, revival. Um, and I think that's really important and can hold a lot of lessons for us, actually, in terms of planning change, let alone unplanned change. And it's interesting that it's acting as a model also in other US cities in terms of rejuvenating derelict and vacant, <coughs> vacant land. Um, quite interesting from an urban planning point of view to see the way in which the city is being re-envisioned almost as a set of urban villages around an urban core. And um, this might be quite controversial actually in many respects because further homes are due to be demolished to enable this plan to be put in operation um, and new investment will be pumped into stronger neighbourhoods. So there's a, a sort of competitive element here. It's not, it's not levelling the board at all. It's putting money where it's going to create perhaps even further inequalities in what is a very unequal city as it is. But um, 
There is hope, I think, in terms of enhancing the economic competitiveness of Detroit because there's a very strong program of green jobs growth which is also being promoted within this city. So not only is land use being changed but uh, money is being targeted to focus on an economic revival and to kind of reinvent Detroit as probably the first post-American city or the first post-carbon city if you like. So I think what we can take from these examples is that cities face major issues in terms of resource security and resource scarcity. We need to develop effective responses to reduce carbon emissions. Cities need to maintain their economic competitiveness if they are to succeed. But we also need to think about how we maintain social cohesion and promote social sustainability. But very often, I think, these objectives are not able to be dealt with at a city level. We find that city level pressures are increasing, and so our response is very often piecemeal and fragmented. These are kind of experiments in sustainable urban development. The, the, for want of a better expression, the projects like Hammerby, um, the projects like Dockside Green, for example, are, are kind of quasi-experiments and they're piecemeal, they're not connected in any way, they're not systemic. And it's this systemic thinking, I think, that needs to be brought home much more in terms of the way that we coordinate and plan our transitions. So we want to move away from that towards network-wide systemic change. We need to develop coordinated governance systems we need within a city to consider not only retrofitting but also new build and we need to have long-term commitment to 2050 rather than it being a one-off episodic kind of a change. And, and things are changing not only in the UK but elsewhere. The um, local authorities in Greater Manchester, for example, have now a strategy called From Red Brick to Green Brick, which will transition the city through to a low carbon future over the next five years. So there's a good example of how in this country we're starting to tackle the idea of systemic change. And in moving towards the conclusion of um, what I wanted to say this evening, I suppose if I were to kind of summarise where we are at the moment in, in thinking about critical success factors that would lead to a more sustainable future, then certainly we need strong governance and planning systems in place, that's, that's a given. We need better joining up and integration across the built environment. As I was saying earlier, it's too fragmented. We need to develop an integrated approach to sustainable development, which brings together environment, economics, as well as the social dimension underpinned by strong governance. Very, very often, as I said earlier, the social dimension is overlooked. It's almost the poor cousin within the, the traditional triple bottom line approach. And of course, we can't do anything without money. Um, I think it's timely that we're starting to think about the Green Investment Bank in this country, but we also need to think about tax regimes can we make it a more level playing field in terms of VAT, for example, as between new build and refurbishment? And do we actually want to have mandatory codes 
for all refurbishments, not just new build, but all refurbishments to maintain the highest standards of energy efficiency in those um, refurbishments. And then finally, effective private and public partnerships. I think, uh, again, it's a given that without public sector actors on board, these kinds of projects won't happen. It's all very well proving the business case and convincing the private sector that sustainability pays, but it's all about partnerships. So, in conclusion, um, I think cities are the problem, but they're also the solution. Fragmentation, cost and complexity characterise everything that we um, have to experience, but this is a soluble problem, it's something that we can solve. Unplanned change can have fruitful results, as we saw in the case of Detroit, but it carries much greater risks, I would suggest. Therefore, we need to plan for transformative change, which means an integrated approach, joining up what we have at building city and national level within the context that we operate in. We need socio-technical solutions that are not just deterministic and saying that the technology will work if it's applied. We all know that doesn't work. We need to understand how people behave and how governance structures underpin that technology. And we also need to join up our research across a range of scales from building level all the way up to city level. So. Um, thank you very much for listening and if you'd like to find out more about the retrofit project that I was talking about earlier then we do have a website that you can check out. So thank you. I've probably just gone over my time I think.